Golly gosh, hello, and welcome to Witch Hassle. I am, as always, your host, Envelope Swashbuckle, and I am I am so pleased that you are here with me today to experience the interview that I recorded back in October with Ariana Serpentine about her new book, Sacred Gender. It's a great book. It's a lovely chat. So pleased to share it with you. And, you know, it is, it is here November 26th, just a few days after American Thanksgiving. And if you celebrated American Thanksgiving, I hope you had a wonderful time. And if you didn't, I hope you had a very nice Thursday. Super Jupiterian Thursday that day. You know, not just because, you know, American Thanksgiving, always on a Thursday, Jupiter's Day. And it is, of course, a, a holiday based around family, which is wicked Jupiterian. And also, you know, I mean, like Thanksgiving, very much, you know, a holiday that comes out of... My understanding is that the, the American Thanksgiving national holiday comes out of attempting to heal the wounds of the American Civil War by, of course, uh, erasing America's history of genocide. But, you know, an attempt at a kind of national project, which is also, you know, Jupiterian in its way. But more interestingly, for this particular instance of the holiday, it was around Thanksgiving that one Jupiter, which had been retrograde, went direct, and two, Jupiter entered Pisces, which is one of these zodiacal signs that Jupiter rules. So just big Jupiter vibes, just all, all throughout, and I assume lingering on, even today, on this less Jupiterian day of Saturday. Got a bit of housekeeping before we get to the interview itself. It has occurred to me, you know, when I know I'm going to be doing an interview with somebody, I tend to announce that on Twitter to give you, the listener, an opportunity to chime in with questions you would like to ask or have asked of the interview subject, because I want this show to be, you know, a resource for you, the people. But for some reason, I guess it never occurred to me to just do it on the show itself. So, hey, I uh, got off the phone last night with Professor Charles Porterfield. Going to be interviewing him in a couple weeks. If so you have any questions for him, send them to me. He is the author of a number of books about magic, including A Deck of Spells, which is one of my favorite books about magic. Uh, also, uh, Hoodoo, Bible Magic, and The Sporting Life. And so... If you, if you have any interest in that, or curiosity, or you're excited about the guy, or you're just, like, confused, please send questions to me and hopefully I will be able to ask them of him as your proxy. Uh, the other bit of housekeeping is that I will have a link in the show notes to where you can find information on the Venmo, PayPal, Cash App, etc. handles of people who work at Club Q in Colorado Springs. Apparently a number of folks there, perhaps unsurprisingly, are having difficulty making ends meet in the aftermath of that terrible attack. So if you have some money and you would like to send it to them directly to help them with material uh, things in this difficult time, please, I encourage you to do so. And I will have a link in the show notes to where you can learn where to send that money and how. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Ariana Serpentine. Ariana Serpentine is a multi-traditional witch, polytheist, and animist. She is transgender and queer and has worked in political trans activism, raising awareness for the needs of her community within pagan and other circles. I do hope you enjoy. Here's that talk. The book is, is really lovely. And, and I, I'm curious, what was the experience like of writing this book? Because you kind of really have to like go pretty far between, say, talking about personal experiences and then going into the very theoretical element of things, you know, like there's 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 biography and then there's just sort of the general sense of the human experience writ large. Like, was it was it difficult, like navigating that like very diverse terrain? I feel like I wrote those different parts often at different points. It kind of grew organically. I uh, wrote up outlines for a bunch of chapters, not all of them translated to the final product. But each one grew and I would say to myself, okay, I want to work on this one today. Or, okay, uh, let's talk about deities today because that's an easy subject for me to work on, but I need to get some of this out and get, get it written. And so I was in different places as I wrote it too. I wrote it in a bunch of different spots. I was doing a lot of traveling up and down the West Coast at that point because I was moving to Seattle from the Bay Area. 
And so I sometimes would write on the road. I took a couple of writer's breaks to just, you know, get a cheap motel room somewhere, basically away from everything so that I could just focus and cram. And I also wrote some around, you know, spiritual experiences or personal festivals and things like that, that I practice, you know, um, where I would get inspiration and go, oh, I should write about this or, oh, I should include this or, oh, here's a thought for this also. And I mean, a lot of it was... The biographical bits were to ground it and to make it more human and give a human experience to it. The theory bits were the parts that were really especially interesting to me because I was trying to go places that I hadn't gone before in theory. And I was trying to explore things that I had felt the edges of, but not completely dug into. And I, so I felt feel like the process of writing the book actually opened my mind to some things that I hadn't considered before writing the book so like what's a what's an example of something that sort of like kind of revealed itself in, in a certain way as you're writing this book for you oh one of the ones that i uh that sticks out is how we gender gods that um, was such a cool part of this book sorry i you, please continue i will i will do that oh, later. Yeah, no, i mean that's i'd love to hear your impression if you want to give it but happy to share it too i mean i was kind of curious about because i mean like, the point you make about there's so much really interesting stuff in this book about the idea of how often, especially with pagan practices that are doing sort of like historic reconstruction, how often people sort of underestimate the level to which they are actively constructing something and attempting to reconstruct it. I think with the gods, like that was something that I'd never really considered. Like, because for you, 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 in the book, of course, you point out that like there is a tendency to address gods with very definite conceptions of how they might be experiencing gender or how we are sort of projecting gender onto them. And I am curious, like in your own relationship with gods and thinking about gods, how much do you feel like you and the people you've seen, you know, working through like Wicca and pagan sort of circles, how often do you feel like that process is mostly a projection to give people a kind of categorical handhold of like, I understand gender this way, so I can understand this being this way. And how much of that do you feel like is really the active attempt to like listen and be like, there is something, there's going to be something coming from this God. And as long as I'm sensitive enough to it, I can actually get it for its own sake instead of just, you know, hearing the things that will fit into my existing conceptions of how this is supposed to work. Well, I think a lot of it's the first one until people have experiences that prompt them to consider the second one. I think a lot of times it is a category, a simple a way of understanding and categorizing beings in ways that are recognizable to us and ways that we normally categorize beings because we're trying to think of them as beings at the same time as understanding that they're not human. But I do feel that a lot of it is is categorization, not for its own sake, but because that's what we do, right? And then people have experiences or someone will read a particular piece of mythology that makes them go, hey, wait, this story sounds familiar in a different way, or this reminds me of something else. And our mythologies about deities are things that we create to understand them. And their names are names that we have given them or potentially that they have given us at this point. We don't know the answer, but so many of the things about them are things that we project onto them because that's how we deal with beings. And as an animist type person, I understand that and I sympathize with that. And I also think it's important to remember what is projection and what isn't. How, like, how did you develop a sensitivity for that kind of thing? Because I feel like the problem with projection is that it's always sort of, it's hidden from us until we somehow have it revealed to us or we reveal it to ourselves, right? Like that's, it's, it's a lot of work, I think, for folks. It is. And I can't say that I'm free of it myself. Obviously, you know, the god of the horses is a horse, right? Um, I mean, not always. We can think a little ways outside of ourselves. We do our best. How did I come to it? Well, I came to I'm not sure exactly. I don't have a, an origin story for that series of thoughts other than just considering, well, I actually know. I do think I know where it came from, which is when people talked about different kinds of human narratives among deities, especially ones that had to do with gender, I asked myself how we decided in the first place that a god was X, Y, or Z. And cultures change. Like there might be a culture that doesn't have, that has different gender roles and different genders than ours. 
that still acknowledges things beyond man and woman, but that doesn't necessarily translate well or hasn't been translated well because the culture that we are living in right now doesn't make good space for those things. So you see things like, for instance, Hermes. Everyone calls Hermes non-binary these days, especially the astrology people, because in astrology, you have the principle that Mercury, uh, Mercury's gender varies based on where Mercury, what Mercury is close to and what, what Mercury is up to, right? And other qualities of Mercury. But when classically that either was something that was written between the lines or maybe not something at all, but it's how people these days are perceiving that deity with the current our current understandings. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. Cool. And actually, like speaking of Hermes, I feel like we're getting we're getting into theory so so sure. fast. So I feel like we should probably in that same grounding impulse, kind of like return back to biography just a little bit. But like, it feels like in the book that when you when you started sort of working in pagan communities and, and wicked communities and things of that sort, like you were running into a lot of very well-meaning people who were potentially not terribly radical in their understanding of gender and how it applied to spirituality. And what was what were those sort of early experiences like of having to kind of be like, I, I want to be part of this community, I want to participate in it, but I'm also finding that these that this community is not necessarily meeting me where I am, or it's not meeting, honestly, a lot of these spiritual entities where they are. It was interesting because for a long time I tried to fit into it. And a lot of this was before I came out as trans myself. I was always out as queer, and that was always something that caused little bits of friction in places because even the majority of queer people have, well, different experiences of gender, you know, or or interesting takes on gender, right? Even if they aren't trans or non-binary specifically. And heck, when I was beginning to do this stuff, the term non-binary had not come come trickling down to me. This was probably, you know, when I got started was probably a good decade or so before I even heard the term genderqueer, which was the first non-binary term that I ran into. But it was frustrating seeing that having this deep set feeling that there was more, that there were deeper ways of understanding this than just the the billowy f- festival gown goddess and her horned roadie husband, right? That there there had to be more than that, but I didn't know how to express that and I couldn't find good ways to express that except for very privately. And I did have some cool experiences, like there was a women's group that invited me, a women's spirituality group that invited me to join um, because quote unquote, it just felt right for them to invite me. And uh, that was a really positive experience for me. So I found I found places where people understood despite the lack of language, or people had ways of expressing things despite the lack of language around it. But I think that the language being a material person, I think that the language is um, a heavily material person. I think the language is an important door to being able to open up understandings and a good access point for people. But yeah, it was frustrating early on. It was frustrating having all these people who were well-meaning, but had very set ideas about what masculine energy and feminine energy are and who projects what and what roles you can take in a circle based on your genitals or what your genitals are assumed to be. And that felt very limiting, especially in religious environments where reincarnation was encouraged as a common belief. I'm like, so the genitals that you are born with in this particular life determine your fate and your spiritual identity permanently across all existence, even if you are being, you know, a being who is constantly in the process of being reborn or coming into new life after death. You know, it, it didn't really fit and it didn't make sense to me that there was this contradiction. It was kind of frustrating. So yeah, frustrating would be a good short term for it. Yeah, yeah like I, the kind of like myopic fixation on on something where you're like trying to be super cosmic. Like we're all we're all eternal beings, but also this is this is the this is the guardrail. Just to like keep sitting with this frustration for a second and then we can move on to more fun things. Sure. But like one of the early experiences you talk about is dealing with people sort of like trying to be helpful, like foisting Loki on oh, yeah. um, on you like could you talk a little bit about like what what they're trying to do how that was working out and like if perhaps your relationship with loki has maybe gotten a bit nicer since you haven't been sort of forced together in this particular way 
Yeah, it was that that's a really good example. And I appreciate that. That is an example of folks trying to be well-meaning and helpful, but not listening when when you try to explain something, which is my gender isn't super fluid. Let's start with that. It's um it's fairly well set, somewhere close to women, close enough for, for government work. And it's not something that shifts or changes a huge amount in me. And when it does, it's not in ways that people typically think about that. Um, so that sense of that sense of gender anyway. So I was hanging out with heathens a lot and I was trying to be a heathen because it was interesting to me. There were um, deities that I had always been interested in and traditions I was interested in and hanging out with heathens, aka Germanic pagans, for those who aren't familiar, capital H heathen is for Germanic pagans. And they'd be like, oh, well, you're transgender. Well, we've got a transgender god and that's Loki. Loki changed his gender a bunch of times. That must be, you know, like, Basically, like, you should totally be a Loki person because of this. And I'm like, Loki's story, the narrative and the mythology, his stories don't really necessarily match with mine and my experience of these things. I mean, they're cute and they're fun and they're cool and sometimes they're scary too, but they're not, that's not who I am, or at least not in that way. And I did find areas that I did connect to Loki and I did come to understand him, but I, I was resistant at first because I'm like, why are you all trying to push me into this particular box, which isn't my box? You know, um, I'm a Freya's girl, you know, like, and so my understanding of Loki grew over time and I grew to appreciate other things like calling out unjust authority or the fires of transformation. And, you know, there's some people who view him as a deity who is, who may have been similar in functions to, uh, to Agni and receiving sacrifice or, Helping, being part of the process of the sacrificial flame. There are, lo there are lots of things to Loki that are not about him changing genders, but that wasn't where I connected to him and where I, I found ways to honor him at first. And then later on, you know, after I had enough time to be comfortable with the process, I was like, yes, and you are also a trans deity. And we also, you know, we are also, you know, your kids in a way, your people in a way, you know? So, you know, you mentioned being a Freya's girl, like what is it about Freya that's like, that builds that bond? Like why, why Freya? I don't know, but I do know that there are a lot of, um, there are a fair number of trans women that have strong experiences with Freya. And there is a really interesting trend that's not geographically, like it's not necessarily Germanic, but we also don't know enough to be sure. But we see this with a lot of Mediterranean deities where there are goddesses who are associated with beauty, prophecy, uh, motherhood, and sovereignty, all in different combinations, not all of them encompassing all of them, like Freya isn't a particularly mother-type goddess, but that have trans-feminine followers in the past, or priests, you know, priestesses, you know. <clears throat> we can talk about, you know, Kubele and Inanna and, oh, um, She's associated with fish a lot in the sea. I can't remember her name offhand. But uh, the, Scyth uh, the Scythian Ardenpasa and the Inari, for instance, this is a theme. This is a human-shaped theme. Why it happens, I don't know. But among Norse deities, it seems to be Freya who takes that role. So This is reminding me of something you say in the book about, you know, the idea of like cosmology being really important, which of course, you know, if you're doing a polyistic framework, like, you know, cosmology is a huge because it's... Mm -hmm. It's the map, but like you, you say, um, uh, a cosmology that doesn't contain trans people is not a human one, and it is not one that can relate to humanity because it shuns a significant portion of humanity. And I'm curious, like, given like especially with something like say, you know, Germanic practices, like we're getting these, you know, we're getting a limited number of texts that have been translated who knows how many numbers of times. So like we're constantly getting them filtered through these ideological filters mm -hmm. as they move from the past to the present. Have you found it more helpful? in trying to like make these cosmologies actually function in a way that is holistic and 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 positive is it is it do you find that it's a question of of reinterpreting the sources that exist or 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 a question of sort of going straight to the source and just being like okay freya these are what the stories are about you but like you and me let's Let's talk this out. I think they're valuable for different reasons. I think the personal connection is important and the personal like understanding is important. But I also think trying to find, I mean, <clears throat> I'm not a reconstructionist. I like, I've used the word revivalist. I'm really just a big heretic in a lot of ways because 
I don't think we can I don't think we can really reconstruct any of this. I think we can take pieces of it and try and make a working thing out of the pieces. And if there are already pieces there that speak to trans and non-binary experiences, then yes, please let us use those pieces. And if not, we have to work it out personally and we have to, you know, find where we find those narratives ourselves. And I do talk a little bit about like trying to find those narratives or seeing where those narratives are, or what I think is most important, just like listen to the trans person when they're like, no, this God is totally trans, or like, I totally see them this way. And I understand, I understand this story this way. I understand this energy or this being this way. But I think both are important. And one is important because if we're going to be dealing with working with, revering, etc., deities from cultures that are long past, we don't really have a framework except for the one that's passed down to us. And in a lot of cases, as you pointed out, that's really scant. So we can't really like Germanic stuff, like we're guessing, we're guessing a lot. The Mediterranean stuff's a lot better documented. But even then, you know, there's a lot of guesswork that has to be done because there's so much that we don't know on a small scale. But yeah, I my core assumption in approaching these things is that these people, the people who wrote these mythologies and you know, mythology isn't always religion either. The stories about the gods don't always translate to how they're actually worshipped or honored. But the people who enacted this worship and the people who connected to them and drew, you know, drew favor from them, um, learned magic from them, did all of the things that happen in the relationships between humans and deity, they probably already had an understanding of people that we would consider trans or non-binary, and it either wasn't translated through or which is a big thing. It happens all the time where we just get left out entirely because it doesn't fit the current narrative or the correct narrative. It either didn't translate through or the parts that did involve us didn't survive well. And the reason that I feel that strongly is just because, I mean, we do show up everywhere. Everywhere humans have had writing. They talk about us. It's a little bit harder without the writing, right, to, to record facts like that about a human but we still managed to find evidence our, of our existence and of people like us who had similar, probably had similar experiences in relationship to like the concepts of gender. Yeah. You you have an interesting section here uh, as well about like the idea of like transing the gods, the idea of like yeah. you, like this idea that like there are some gods where because of their gender expression or because of some details about them, like trans folks find often like it's easier to use that person as like a touchstone a little bit Yeah. Mm-hmm. for for folks who are at home and are listening are like I'm, I'm interested in this I want to do like a polytheist thing like what are where are some places I can start looking that might be particularly fruitful for something like that are you talking about specific deities or are you talking about books written about them or I was thinking deities but if you want to do yeah. books too I mean any you know resource for for everybody let's let's go do, yeah the books thing unfortunately I don't there aren't a lot that I can think of offhand. It's more reading about those specific deities. But let's see, gods that we know had interesting gender stuff include Loki. Obviously, Loki is always shape-shifting and and turns into different people. And Loki gets accused of being a midwife and, you know, helping to bear many children and bearing many children themselves in Midgard at one point during the the famous Lokasena rap battle between the gods. And then in this very same rap battle, in reply, Odin is um, accused of dressing in women's clothing to learn women magic from women, which is another, you know, another deity who Odin is vast and multifaceted. He has so many names, so many things associated with him. You know, you think that you think that a being that is, you know, the cosmic voice, the howling winds, the inspiration of, of poetry, the inspiration of inspiration itself, you think you can pin that down to one human gender? I don't think so. So, I mean, among Germanic deities, those are the ones that have the most obvious, some of the ones that have the most obvious narratives that I know of. Although there are people who have interesting things to say about Njord and Nerthus, because Nerthus seems to be a feminine version of Njord. So there's some question, there's some people who honor Njord as gender fluid for that reason. That's not in my practice, but it's something worth mentioning, at least in that area. Mediterranean deities, there are so many of them. Um, you can flip through the Orphic hymns and find how many gods are described as male or fe- male and female, or masculine and feminine, or you know, Artemis is called masculine in appearance. You know, like there's a lot of very obvious, very beautiful and rich gender diversity among 
uh, Mediterranean deities, but off the top of my head, I mean Dionysus, obviously. Kubele slash Rhea has interesting stuff, partly because of the um, the Gali priests, um, and partly also because of the story, the story of the um, the multi-gendered intersex vast being Agdistus. So uh, you have Fanes also, who is a multi-gendered being or all-gendered being, who is the first being, the brilliant light that all things come forward out of, that, that emerges from the Orphic egg. You have Artemis, who definitely defies a lot of gender stereotypes. You have Athena, who is also like, you know, King Butch, you know, in a lot of ways. There's really a lot of diversity there, and I feel like we'd see that in a lot more of the other polytheist cultures that have modern religious and spiritual and magical traditions attached to them if we had more source material available. Mm -hmm. Um, I know, let's see, I'm trying to think of other pantheons. I know transmasculine folks who associate strongly with the Dagda, and that's for complicated reasons that I don't really have good words for myself. And a lot of folks seem to, you know, have this feeling of neutrality of gender or or multiplicity of gender around the Great Queen, around Anmodigan as well. So um, those are just some examples off the top of my head. Okay. Yeah, I mean, the... I think the the section where you talk about Frey in particular really hit me as oh. like this is just a lovely lovely axis point of the idea of like I don't know like the sense of like transition and safety like the idea of like you know growing into oneself a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there are people who take who connect Frey to this sense of healthy masculinity because he gives up his sword for love, for instance, as an example, and also he had what were probably trans and non-binary somewhere in that neighborhood clergy as well, described by Saxo Grammaticus as being followed by the unmanly clattering of bells and uh, dressing dressing in women's clothes. So yeah. I remember that description from the book and I'm still kind of like, I don't know what it is about bells that isn't like, oh, a bell, that is, that's nothing mask about that. But like, I don't, anyway, you also, you know, there's, there's a lot here about about the gods, but you also talk about the dead. And I'm curious because I don't, you know, cards on the table. I don't know much about like contemporary polytheism. Like I know a little, like I, you know, I hang out with people, but I like, I, you know, I, my bent is, is somewhere else. So like you mentioned this idea that there's, there's even reluctance in the community to sort of work with the dead at all. So what was it like for you to kind of, you know, start approaching that realm? Well, yeah, I mean, it really depends on the area and the people that you're talking to, you know, but my experiences in like, let's say the 90s and early 2000s with the paganism that was there, I got a lot of negative talk about dealing with ghosts. It was always like, you know, if there's a ghost in the house, they must be banished. You know, you must keep your home clean of ghosts and of the dead. Um, I heard things like I was told things early on, like if you see a dead person or you're talking to a dead person, it means you're going to die soon. Or, you know, being around the dead brings death energy. And well, I mean, there there are, you know, that's what cleansing's for. Um, there are ways of mitigating and working with that, you know. But yeah, there is a lot of really odd reluctance and negativity about it. And it felt really strange to me because as far as I understood, that's one thing that witches did was talk to the spirits of the dead and work with the spirits of the dead. And also because I had the sense of ancestry and, and connection, like maybe not direct ancestry, but ancestry and spirit, you know, trying to walk in the footsteps of people who had gone before you, it felt just kind of wrong to exclude them. So my spiritual progression or religious, I guess, kind of progression of religious expression started with this um you know, 90s pop pseudo Wicca, you know, and bit by bit, myself and my community started replacing things or adding things. We were like, oh, we're not making offerings. We're getting together every Sabbath to make magical doohookies and ask for blessings from the gods. But like, we're not giving anything back. And this just doesn't feel right. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like the purpose of the exercise or what the purpose of the exercise should be. Yeah. So we incorporated offerings and we we brought up the issue with spirits of the dead. So we started doing stuff for the ancestors and for the spirits of the dead, you know, and eventually that kind of turned into a more, uh, what's the word? Well, it turned into a more polytheist framework and what I feel like was probably a more traditional religious type framework as well over time. Do you kind of like the idea that you organically kind of find the tradition as opposed to having to like do it by rote? 
of receiving it. It's really cool when that happens. It sounds, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's that, is that where you think like what really places us in the tradition is actually just trying to figure it out, which is what everyone has always sort of done, hopefully. But uh, in terms of like working with the dead, I feel like there might be some, I think a lot of people actually just have reluctance to do any kind of like working with the dead or like ancestor work because there's, there's this presumption, right? That if you go into the past, everyone is like your worst uncle. But like everyone who was born for like a certain era, like it's just Victorians all the way down. You know, it's, it's, there's no point in talking to the dead because they're all retrograde and, and nasty. And like beyond just the basic principle, question of like has that been your experience which i suspect it has not like what would you say to someone who is expressing that kind of concern like maybe I, i'd feel whole in some way if i could do this but i'm worried that i'm just going to meet you know asshole after asshole all the way to uh you know the first thing that climbed out of the ocean i'd say a few things one that's a very low opinion of humanity and i understand why someone would have that low opinion of humanity but at the same time i don't think it's realistic People have had lives like yours before. They might not have had the same technological toys, but they put up with the same, many of the same struggles, um, even if those struggles look different. And people in general, more or less, have tried to be good people. That's not always the case, but it's the case often enough, right? The other thing is, is that you can deal with the ancestors as a general category and not that ancestor over there in specific. And when you are speaking of the ancestors as a general category, your ancestors, the people who, who, in whose footprints you stand, the people who you either physically come from or who you are descended from because of an important aspect of your life, something that makes you what you are that also made them what they are. So profession, there's all kinds of different categories that you could put to that. But anyway, there are broad categories and working with the categories in general or working with the ancestors in general is a good place to start because in general, they want to see you doing all right because you're, they're your ki you're their kid, you're their descendant. They want to see you doing well. Individually, they might have different opinions about it. And that is something that people do have to field and work with when they get into ancestor work. But if you start with the ancestors as a general category, I feel that once you build up a decent relationship working with that category and decent experience working with that category, it becomes easier and you have more support from your ancestors in general when dealing with the individual asshole ancestors. The other thing I want to say is people change over time. And I don't know what you believe about the dead, but I think they change over time too. I know they change over time from my personal experience and the traditions that I've been in. Um, since I've started working with ancestors and the dead, you know, souls change, they become other things, they become other souls, they become other beings. And little things like disapproving of your lifestyle, or big things like disapproving of your gender or your sexuality, or, you know, things like that, those are things that change in perspective and can change with, with time. There's, you know, there are a lot of techniques that people who do more intense ancestor work do like well you're not going to get any veneration unless you're supportive of me or at least unless you're not an asshole to me you don't get to share in the offerings and the other ancestors will make sure of that you know i'm cutting you out <laughs> until you're until you're willing to respect me or or give me some you know decent give me some decent respect basically you know trying to build a, a respectful relationship is important and like i said starting with ancestors as a general category before you dip into specific categories and specific ancestors, unless you have a really good reason to, I think is a good way to start and deal with the problematic uncle problem, you know? Because it's the idea of like the collective ancestors, because it sort of sounds like, you know, like in sort of like Norse, um, Norse religion, you have, you know, like the Norn say, like collect, yeah. like more collective kind of gods. Like what is that experience like for you? Just like on a kind of like a phenomenological like personal level working with like a collective does it feel like you're talking to like a beehive or like is it is it does it is it more impressionistic like because i can't imagine it's sort of like the convert like addressing a school assembly or something like like what is it like sort of talking to a big mass but is also made of individuals to whom you are sort of both collectively and then like individually connected i feel like it's different 
based on the collective entity that you're talking about. With the dead, with the ancestors collectively, I will get surges of feeling and things that aren't as simply put into words. Now, mind you, also at this point, I have done a lot of personal work with individual guides and members of my team, so they often act as a filter. Like, I have people to say, okay, well, what are they saying to me? To translate what the ocean of feeling or what the the energy shift in the room is trying to trying to tell me but sometimes it can sound like a chorus sometimes a single voice will speak out for the chorus sometimes it's just confusing which isn't great but you know that's life but there are examples where there are coordinated groups of spirits or deities uh, because i also work with some collective deities too like the matroni and other other collectives where it feels like they're used to doing that and so they will usually have a representative come forward and speak speak as one voice for the group in a way so can look a lot of different ways <laughs> do you recommend that like because you know that idea of like having someone on your, your sort of spiritual team like a kind of a guide to be like a, an intermediary every now and again do you recommend that to people as they try this or should they really like at least the beginning kind of just like try to really just like interface directly with the dead. I think it's a good idea for people to make offerings to their ancestors and acknowledge their ancestors and thank their ancestors and occasionally ask their ancestors for help. And I don't really think that you need to do anything more specific than that. But I think if you don't have that general practice, there is something a little bit missing from your human spirituality, because this is the human element of your spirituality, the part that has to deal with people, or at least one of the parts that has to deal with people. I recommend that people do find individual spirits that they can work with. And the problem is I can't specifically share great methods myself, but there are there are forms of spiritism and there are other traditions that focus on helping you find your guides or your your go-to people. I think everybody's got spirits that are assigned to them or that have chosen to accompany a person that are your backup dancers, that are your team, that are there to support you or to help you through this incarnation. And those are the ones that if you need an interface with the ancestors in general or with other ancestors, those are who you should talk to. As to development for that, it really varies based on tradition. You know, I've had my own experiences with that and it's going to be different from person to person. It's also something that I taught a class on once upon a time and I might do again because it's good for folks to have some kind of grasp of what sort of backup they have and have individuals that they can call to to help moderate, mediate, and stand between themselves and others. I feel like that's really good advice. You mentioned in the book this idea of like reaching out to categories of ancestors, you know, like lineage ancestors. And like in terms of like queer lineages or yeah. or things along those lines, or even gendered lineages in some way, do you feel like it's better to sort of go people you are somehow genetically connected to who you feel like might be, you know, somewhere in that in that realm as well? Or is it is it really picking sort of like historic folks that you feel like connected to, like not in terms of like, you know, like it, you know, like it isn't the Venn diagram of like lineage and this other this other element, but it's simply that like, you know, it's purely the element and like you're, you're picking specific names, you're picking specific people, there, there are faces you can picture, that sort of thing. Yeah, I talk about the difference between ancestor veneration and hero worship. Mm. Um, and I use kind of hero worship to mean when you're picking out specific people and offering to specific people and making relationship with spirits of specific people, which is, I think is, is good and important, but isn't the same thing as broader ancestor veneration, which I feel, I guess, is a little bit more important because, um, your ancestors as a general category are, tend to be supportive. Like when you're doing hero worship, like is that just sort of like any other god, any other sort of spirit, or is there something specific to hero worship? Because I feel like there's something when I hear the phrase used in a non-magical context, right? Mm -hmm. Just like you know, kids with a baseball card or something. Sure. Yeah. There's a sense of like wanting to come to emulate this figure, whoever they were. And do you feel like hero worship like has that like level of emulation, or is it really just the same kind of like you're a spirit that I I feel connected to and I want you know, your help, and I want to help you in some way. Like, is it, is it, is there an act of becoming in the hero worship? I don't think there is always. I think there are some ancestors that you can choose as heroes, that you can ask for help that may not necessarily match your life particularly well. I'm not a warrior type person, 
but there are a couple of historic warriors who, for particular reasons that came up in my own practice, I felt a resonance with. And so I've done some hero worship around them, not because I necessarily want to be like them, although I'm sure there are ways that I could emulate them that would be good, but because I I think they're important, they deserve to be honored, and I had some kind of personal connection at one point or another with them. So you don't have to emulate them, but a lot of times there is an aspect of emulation, or I want to honor that person because look what they did. Mm -hmm. I wish I could do that too, you know, and that's a perfectly natural human urge for people to do as well, you know, and a good way and frankly, in my opinion, a good reason to engage in hero worship and worshiping individual ancestors or uh, worship is a complicated word, isn't it? You know, yeah. people have all these fights on Twitter about like worship versus work with versus venerate. I, I just, I want a moratorium on that. Please nobody judge me on which words I use here. I'm just doing the ones that come most naturally. But uh, yeah, I feel that and so among forms of ancestor veneration, you know, you reach out to particular ancestors because you want to, you see something in them that's similar to something in you. Mm. And you're looking for support in that is the most common reason that I see people honoring particular individual ancestors instead of groups. As for ancestral lineages or groups, they, I don't know why or how exactly, but they tend to respond. You know, I know mm. people who work with the queer dad as a general category. I also work with the queer dad as a general category and the trans dad as a specific category because we deserve some specific attention as well because we go through some things, trans folks go through some things that other queer folks don't necessarily and have some some stuff. You can you can subdivide these categories as much as you want to and really who responds to you is based on who wants to respond to you at any given point. But, you know, it seems having these functional groupings of ancestors seems to work pretty well for me and other folks I know. So I'm really glad that you're kind of framing it this particular way, because I think a lot of people when they try to like, especially if they're like evangelizing for like ancestor work, there's sort of a sense of like, think how powerful you could be if this um, army of the dead was behind you and everything. And like the idea of like, actually, it's also about caretaking. It's also about like, you know, like I'm not, you are not forgotten. You are not left behind. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is really, you know, like important, you know, community building, mutual aid, uh, stuff my 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 communism is coming out before we leave working with the dead yeah. you mentioned in passing something important happening to you at the serious rising festival oh, yes. yeah. and i wanted to touch on that because i i am curious what uh what happened um also what is the serious rising festival okay. the serious rising festival is a festival in sherman new york that's held every year that's a um big mostly pagan oriented festival that was and let me tell you the i hope i have the history on all of this accurate but this is my understanding of it which is that there was the hysteria there was a larger festival starwood that was held at the same campgrounds and starwood was originally started by the merry pranksters back in like the 70s oh my gosh um, um continued at that little spot in new york up until uh sometime in the early 2000s serious rising was for was the festival that happened the week before for the people who are interested in the more spiritual side of things and less in the hardcore drugs party side of things mm. and then Starwood, the festival, moved to the Wisteria campgrounds in Ohio, and Sirius Rising kind of became the main summer festival. And now there's a secondary summer festival for the folks coming before Sirius Rising. But it's it's a week-long event that has, you know, you can camp in the woods or glamp in a local hotel or what have you. And there are authors and speakers that come to give presentations on various topics you know, different forms of body work, different forms of energy work, different forms of uh, magical and spiritual work. They also have a bunch of shrines there. There's a little runestead for the Norse and Germanic shrine um, deities. There's a nematon for Celtic gods. There are elemental shrines around the property. And there's also this like ancestor mound next to a giant labyrinth in the grass. And the ancestor mound is where I had the, that area was where I had the experience that I talked about in the book 
But Sirius Rising is a magical time. It really is. I've had a lot of good summers. Um, it was the highlight of my summer for a great many years. So, hell yeah. So, what was like? What was the experience like with the with the ancestor mound? Like, was that was that like an awakening? How did it, like t- give me like a like visceral like what what was it like being a person and a body and a spirit in that moment? It was frightening at first. So to give a brief explanation or description of what happened, I had just gone through several things that confirmed that I decided that I wanted to come out and transition. You know, I had received very solid, you know, spiritual and other forms of guidance on it. And I decided it was this year that I was going to do it. And so I'm in the dark near the ancestor mound. And I was approaching them because I wanted support because I was about to do something big and scary that was going to turn my life upside down. And I called out to them and I asked for those who had been through similar big scary things to come and support me. Other people who were like me from the past, I wanted their support. I wanted their guidance. I wanted to know that they were there for me. And I had a very visual experience and that was actually kind of like terrifying um because and i've had a lot of interesting experiences like that on that campgrounds by the way at times but where it looked like a shadowy figure pulled itself out of the ground and it was linked at the hands with another one and as they as they rose up they pulled the next one in the chain up basically until it was like paper dolls made out of shadow in a ring around me on this very dark night Um, at Sirius Rising, and then we spoke, and and I got help, and I got support, (laughs) and I had a particular spirit who came to me out of that group, who stayed with me for years, who helped me a lot with what I was going through at various points in time, and that spirit has moved on to other things at this point. There's, There's a principle in some traditions working with the dead of the dead doing services for the living in exchange for getting to move on or getting to go to another place in the afterlife or having some other transition. And I kind of feel like that's what happened with that particular spirit, but I'm super grateful that she spent the time with me and and gave me the support that she did. But yeah, no, it was scary to see like shadow paper dolls pulling themselves out of the ground when I don't usually get very visual things like that happening. And it was visceral. I mean, like, I felt it deep in my viscera and it was cold. <laughs> so, but it wasn't frightening after a moment. Like the the initial fear of what's happening, oh, is this really happening to me was what hit me. But then when they spoke, the fear went away because I knew I, I knew that they were there to help. They weren't there to hurt me. Mm. That sounds simultaneously beautiful and absolutely terrifying and you know kudos to you for not sprinting away which is honestly i think what my reaction would have been uh or just yelling a lot of things in garbled latin and being scared speaking of 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 actually it's not even about this it's like the thing that flickered in my imagination was you saying that wasn't the purpose of the exercise and that was like a half an hour ago but we are coming back to (laughs) coming back to the idea now we're just like this book isn't like i don't want to give people because this book is, it's theoretical, it's biographical, but there's also exercises. There's work yeah. to be done as a reader in this book. And I'm curious, like these exercises, like what was it like developing? Like, I guess what's even before we even get to the sort of like the process here as a writer and as like a, a thinker here, but like, what are you hoping people get out of these exercises? Like, what are you, what are you trying to build in the reader or help the reader build in themselves? Because this is, of course, facilitation. They have to do, everyone always has to do the work themselves. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a really good question. In general, with the exercises, I'm hoping for people to have a better understanding of themselves. That's really the primary central goal of it. And based on that better understanding of themselves, because you are a node in a net, you're a a place in a broad web. You know, all of us are different nodes in in a broad web is one way of looking at it. Your relationship with the others around you will improve by understanding yourself and being able to live as yourself better. Your relationships with deity, with spirits, with the dead, and with other living human beings can only get better as you are more honest with yourself about who you are and how you present yourself in the world. And a lot of the exercises are geared towards 
challenging certain ideas people have about themselves or opening them up to other ideas about themselves that maybe they just never considered. You know, I expect a fair number of cisgender people will probably read the book also. And there are exercises that a lot of trans people just kind of already have done this as part of their daily life that a lot of folks who aren't trans don't consider or think about in the first place. Like the first exercise where I tell you to um, tell me about your gender without using the words male, female, boy, girl, masculine, feminine, any of those binary coded words, describe your gender to me, is something that trans people do. And a lot of people who aren't trans don't even think to do that in the first place. And so whether you come out of this with a changed understanding of yourself and you're like, oh, maybe I'm not the gender that I thought I was, or whether you come out saying, yes, I definitely am, you will have learned something about yourself. And knowing those things about yourself is valuable for yourself, self-actualization, and also for your relationship with those around you. You can't have good relationships unless you're honest with people. And you can't be honest with people until you're honest with yourself. And, um, you know, I didn't put this in the book. I did, Maybe I did put it in the book. I don't remember. My first experience with Freya in a meditation involved her saying, there is a lot of work for us to do together, and we will do none of it until you stop lying to everyone. And this was about gender. And uh, Such a Norse thing to say. So <laughs> Sorry, but continue. Yes. Uh, yes. So, yes, I feel very strongly that exploring and understanding your gender, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? You're going to try something out and it's not going to fit you. Or you're going to try something out and it does fit you and your life is better as a result. Oh, fucking no. You know, that's not a bad thing. And so a lot of the exercises in the book are geared towards that. Different forms of revelation. And there's even one um, that involves, that's a little bit more mystical, that involves Phanes in a mirror. Phanes as uh, as the primordial being in a mirror that I developed that, um, that's, I mean, there are more intellectual and psychological exercises and there's more like deep mystical exercises and that's one of those i also have you know the last chapter of the book is just i had originally titled it the gender grimoire but felt that that didn't fit too perfectly so it's gone through a bunch of different titles but the last chapter is just sigil magic gender initiation like magic that has to do with things that trans people do or things that have to do with gender is it comprehensive does it fit everything into it no but it gets a conversation started that really needs, there need to be more conversations around. And other people can fill in all of the other things that I haven't talked about, or, you know, say their own pieces on the things that I have talked about, so. Do you, do you feel like that, that might be the next book is like an actual sort of gender grimoire kind of thing? You know, I hadn't thought of it, but that's not a terrible idea. I just don't know if I'm the person to write the whole thing. It would need to be a collaboration. Mm. Um, because I've got my experiences and there are a lot of people with a lot of different experiences. And there's a lot of stuff I didn't didn't even touch on. I mean, like, you know, the concept of shape-shifting as a trans person is is a very um is a big thing. And that's not something I even really touched on at all in the book. Someone brought up a suggestion that I realized I should have written about, which was magic specifically for magical and spiritual approaches to uh, medical transition. You know, I know a lot of people who bless their hormones and going through surgery is a form of catabasis. It's going into the underworld and coming out changed. So there's a lot more to be written on the subject. And I'm not the only person I feel who is right to write about it. So maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll have a group project at some point and we can come out with a, a, big, a big gender grimoire written by a whole bunch of different people with a lot of different spells and meditations and things like that. That, that wouldn't be a bad idea. Yeah, I would actually, yeah, like, hey, Wiser, commission, commission that anthology right now. Oh, yeah. Ahoy, beguiling listeners. If you're hearing this, it means that the version of this episode that you're listening to is the abridged version. If you want to hear the full version of this episode and the full version of a bunch of other episodes of listener-supported Witch Hassle, head on over to Patreon dot com slash witch hassle and for only five dollars a month a single saw buck i think unless that's a tenor no five five a saw bucks tenor is ten is that how that for five dollars you can hear the full version of this whole bunch of other bonus stuff and support the show you'll be glad you did and now 
Here's the end of the interview. This has been so lovely. Uh, is there, before before we, you know, shut everything down and turn the lights off, is there a last thing you'd like to leave people with? Don't be afraid to explore yourself. Mm. Don't be afraid to look inside the closets and look in the cupboards and look in the back dusty corners of yourself. You live with yourself your entire life. You're the companion that you always have. And those parts of you, if you don't know them, then they're always going to be dusty and they may get dirty and they may accumulate things that you don't want in them. The best closet is one that's open and clean inside. And of course, you know, be careful, take care in the way you express yourself. The world can be difficult. People in the world can be difficult. But the more you know yourself, the more you understand yourself and the more you're able to bring that forward into the world, the more complete a person that you can be and the better you can be for the people around you. Hell yeah. That's my uh, message. Love it. If people want to know more, I mean, obviously go buy the book and yeah. I, I will put a link in the show notes for everybody to go do that. But like, besides that, if they want to, if people want to check you out, they want to check out the work you're doing, where should they go? What should they do? Uh, you can find me on Twitter and on uh, Facebook as Ariana Serpentine. I have more people around on Facebook for some, for whatever reason, but both are options and I share my material there. Also, serpentintree.com is my website. I occasionally post blog posts. I have divinatory and oracular services that I offer there. And sometimes I run online rituals and I will put those up in the upcoming rituals section. At some point I'll be doing classes again and I'll have a classes section on that as well. That's serpentandtree.com. And those are the best places to find me online. So Cool, cool. Actually, you do online rituals. Um, what's yeah. like, what kind of online, I'm curious, like, is this, is this sort of like, you know, join the sort of Zoom call kind of thing or like, how, yeah. how would you like facilitate? It's joining a Zoom call currently. There are a couple of different ways that I've done it in the past. There's both what will happen is kind of round robin, a little bit inspired by heathen uh, style rituals where you're honoring a particular deity and kind of pass the mic to each person for them to toast, give a vocal offering of some sort, even if it's just praise so-and-so and or show off physical offerings that they've done all to contribute to the space and to contribute to connection to the deity. And then there's meditative rituals that I do. I do devotional meditations that kind of lead you to a place to provide you with connection and a place, an inner temple to honor the deity and connect to them in. Um, so I do both of those types of rituals online. Zoom has been, it's really cool that folks have been using Zoom the last couple of years. I feel that online rituals are really helpful because geographic limitations, limitations of ability and things like that, it just makes it easier for a lot of people to attend. I love in-person stuff and there's there's definitely aspects that are missing from online ritual with in-person stuff, including just having the same palpable kinesthetic feeling of the energy, other energy of people in the room. And also I don't like doing magical style rituals as much online. I'm much more comfortable doing religious rituals online. Mm. Magic, it's a little bit harder to sync up with online ritual, I've discovered. But yeah, those are the sort of, I do devotional rituals and a lot of them are devotional meditations because what I've discovered is from those round robin type rituals, a lot of people want to show up and be involved, but don't actually want their face on the camera and don't want to want to talk. I do not wish to be perceived. And so... Yeah, so I give them a chance to participate without having to be perceived. Yeah, I mean, that's what I, I love about, like, Zoom is, like, you just, it's hard to put you on the spot, but, yeah, it's the exact opposite of, like, there's a there's a thing that I used to think about a lot when I was, back when I used to go to bars before there was a pandemic, and, <laughs> um, and it's that scene in, like, the Francis Ford Coppola Dracula movie, where Dracula has gotten to London, and he sees Winona Ryder's character, whose name, her name is completely escaping me, but like yeah. he sees her from like across the crowd and he just like whispers, see me. And then like she turns and she sees him. And I've, I've done that enough in bars where I just like, I see a bartender and like they're doing something and it's like, come on, see me, see me right now. But like yeah. Zoom, it's like the freedom of these ad hops that are like, do not see me. You, do, I'm not here. I'm yep. exploding into a cloud of bats by turning my camera off. It's fine. Yes, turn off camera, turn off voice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, yeah, I'll probably do more of the um, participatory style of ritual at some point. But for now, I'm mainly doing the devotional meditation because it fills a need and folks are less put on the spot by it. So, well, this has been great. Um, congrats fun. on the book. It's a great oh, thank book. You. I'm super excited about it and I'm glad you like it.
Yeah. Big fan. And people who are listening, buy it. I commit I command you in the Gary Oldman in that Dracula movie voice. Oh yes. Now I have to rewatch that. I love that movie. It's fantastic. Just a real gem of like really, I think top three movies for me ever. Sorry, not to like derail this into talking about that one vampire movie but actually yeah like i think like vampire movies really some of the best like because that one like near dark i've been thinking about a lot the catherine bigelow like cowboy uh vampire kind of well, not cowboys but like oh, western okay. vampire. near dark i'll have to check that out okay bill paxton just a real revelation of 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 skeezy horror um but enough of that uh thank okay. you so much thank you you have a great day take care yeah. that's nice talking you too thanks Many, many thanks to Ariana. I will have links in the show notes to where you can buy her new book, Sacred Gender, and also to where you can learn more about her and her activities. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Witch Hassle. As always, our theme music was performed by Sebastian Befastam and recorded by Edfoot Lee. Good luck with the work ahead. <laughs>